Welcome to Tech Talks, your twice-weekly technology podcast with myself, David Savage, where we interview leaders from across the industry to gain insight for the peer group and anyone who's interested in what's going on inside the tech scene. Today's show is a little bit different. It's a recording from our meetup last week, where we were joined by a panel at General Assembly to tackle the subject of continuous learning and the skills market. So on the show today, Dee Seigel, the CEO of Erase All Kittens, Dina Bayesanova, the founder of PitchMe, Callum Goodwilliam, who's a senior education program manager at General Assembly, and Abbas Moldina, the co-founder of Umaker. Now, the recording, I'll be perfectly honest, you live and learn when you're running a passion project podcast. The recording could be better. I'm not going to pull any punches there, but hopefully you stick with it and listen in because it's a 35-minute conversation that covers a whole range of different topics within the continuous learning space. And I think there is a huge amount of insight to be gained. Turns out that you shouldn't set up microphones uh, and also run an internal PA system at the same time. Doesn't really work. But we'll fix that for next time, I promise. Uh, and as I say, this is worth listening to. Um, Dee, Dina, Callum and Abbas offer some really great comments and thought. So anyway, I hope you do enjoy it. And if you like the sound of this, why not come along to our next show? We're going to definitely be coming back with something a bit different in the spring. So to start, if you could just take 20 seconds to tell everyone who you are and what you do, and we'll dive into the questions. Uh, so hello, my name is Abbas. Uh, by profession, uh, I'm a chartered accountant. I'm the co-founder of a company called Umaker. It's the world's first platform for homemade invention. Hi, my name is Dina. Um, I, my also background is in investment management, but now I'm a founder and CEO of PitchMe. It's a skills-based startup marketplace. We allow people to find their dream job by demonstrating their real skill set. Hi, uh, my name is Callum. I'm an education program manager here at General Assembly. Um, as John said, we're a tech education company that specializes in today's leading skills across data, uh, digital, and design. Uh, my role here is uh, part of uh, our hiring and training of all of our instructors who are coming in from industry to work across all of our programs, which are a combination of full time, part time, uh, and workshops as well. Hi, Andy. I'm the CEO of EAK and we're making a game that introduces kids to code education skills from a young age, so from the age of eight, around eight as well. Right, so let's dive into some questions. Um, who should I go to Callum? I think I'll probably pick on you first. Sorry, no forewarning. <laughs> what changes need to be made to the education system to create more potential technology professionals? Such a big question. Um, I mean, I think one of the, I mean, the core, core reasons, one of the core reasons that GA was founded was about trying to provide that access because obviously there are not enough people who have the skill sets that are in demand across a whole variety of different uh, disciplines. I think from well, originally back in the very, very early days, um, GA was about co working space initially, very initially. And the idea was that if you were in that space, you have to do some uh, knowledge sharing as part of that. Uh, and um, what they found is that obviously, if you're in a startup or a small organisation, you might find that you have your head, your head of marketing, but you might not have your head of data yet, or you have a chief product officer, or you don't have your uh, CTO, for example. Mm. And so they found that very quickly um, there was this massive demand for people in the industry right now doing that knowledge sharing. Um, and that's kind of where we grew from and have continued to grow. Um, if you look across, I don't know, 
the, the biggest challenge for many people, geo-critical American organization, the cost of education at a high level is huge. So GA's kind of uh, premise was about being able to provide something that was more affordable and also something that was uh, being able to do it in a much shorter time space as well. Um, alongside that, you've got the fact that uh, organizations need to see the practical skills you can demonstrate. So our courses were built from the ground up to be very practical. Um, can you demonstrate the skill sets that will help you get into a junior role in one of these disciplines? Um, so I guess looking at kind of more traditional education institutions, it's in what ways can they adapt to create programs that are more agile, that are able to respond more quickly to industry? Um, and how can they build programs that allow people to demonstrate their skills quickly? So quick school poll. Alice, you didn't leave university in school and went into technology. No? Yes. Yes. Dina, you were a project manager. Was it technology project manager? Uh, yeah. It wasn't so you did kind of go into tech for education. Come on, no, you didn't. No. Yeah, so I started in the non-profit sector. My background was in the arts, originally my undergraduate degree. So I did a lot of work with um, young people in schools and charities uh, for a number of years. And originally thought that that was because I just loved the arts, but it was only kind of going through that process and going back to study again. I realised that it was working with people that I was really interested in. So it was about kind of halfway through my career so far. I then pivoted into working in L&D and working in the kind of corporate space. Tech by like extension. Yeah. Sorry? And tech by like extension. Yes, exactly. Inevitably kind of ended up in the tech space. Dean, what was your route after education? Um, so I used to be in advertising, coming up with ideas for ads for around six years. Um, and I basically loved it to begin with, but then I really wanted to leave to pursue what I'd always, always been interested in, so game design, um, which I'd always loved, but I didn't see anyone like me in that space, so I just believed that I couldn't do it. I just thought I probably won't be smart enough to do this and ended up in advertising. And then I quit my job after about six years and thought, right, I really want to try and get into this. So I went to lots of meetups in um, game design and education back in London. Um, I was working in different agencies around the world. And yeah, that's basically how I got into it. It was a side hobby to begin with, um, whilst I was freelancing. And then I just really loved, like I really loved doing it. And a lot of people were saying, oh, you should you know, perhaps make this into a company. And it just grew from there. So yep. it was very much like organic in the way it happens. I think if you look at the education system in the UK currently, it's, um, it hasn't changed tremendously over the last 10 years. Uh, the consensus is that you go to high school, you get some GCSEs, some A-levels, you go on to university. Uh, maybe do a postgrad, and then I think there's a, a lot of emphasis being placed on, well then after you've done all that, then go work for someone. And uh, I really feel as though the, the system um, could benefit by highlighting the many benefits of entrepreneurship from a very grassroots level. Um, the, the prospect um, of starting an entity, growing it and scaling it, I think, um, is not something that the current system uh, really accommodates, but I feel it could really capture the imagination of, uh, of many. I mean, how many teachers work in technology? I mean, there's got to be, you said that you didn't really see anyone that looks like what you wanted to be when you were in education. I mean, how many parents and teachers put your women off going into technology? When you look at the gender issue in particular, if anything, it seems to me that teachers and parents work against 
people coming into technology not even neutral, they actually actively dissuade people from going into the technology industry. We've seen this happen a lot, so we basically interviewed girls at different ages, and we've seen that um, they're actually dis dissuaded, like you just said, from teachers, mums and dads, into not wanting to take IT um, computing, um, where they're just told, oh, you know, you, you won't really like this, there won't be any other girls, like, you, you shouldn't really go into something that you'll just drop out of generally. Mm. So it's really sad, actually, because if you really want to do something, you should just be told you can do this. Um, but that doesn't happen, so it's, it's pretty bad. You're not British and you went into tech. Do you think this is a British problem? Um, I think it's an international problem. Uh, and I went not into tech, I went into the most male dominant uh, sector, which is the oil and gas sector. And I have been working there for 12 years, proving that I deserve to be here. Um, but what I observed is uh, not even European, it's, I think it's a global problem. Um, and not only gender uh, diversity, I would say, it's about a really unflexible uh, way of education, which doesn't meet the demand of the modern employment. And the employment market and the workforce market is developing and adjusting really fast, and the conventional universities are still lacking that flexibility. So who we see being flexible in between are students, and parents or the students who support all of their ideas. So, um, and this is why we have general assembly, we have online education uh, providers who actually um, get this extra opportunity for acquiring new skills much, much faster. I was going to say, kind of tying to the points you both made, that I think one of the challenges for teachers in traditional education is, is their capacity to flex and change with demand, right? And, specifically in schools where they're tied and wedded to a curriculum that might be able to be updated quickly. Um, I've got a number of friends who are teachers who work in state schools, and I very much, one of the many paths I thought about in my early career was about going to state school teaching. And one of the things that I was never, I could never quite get my head around that I wanted to do would be teaching the same syllabus or being wedded to a syllabus that you had to stick to year in, year out. And back then it was, I didn't want to teach Shakespeare because I think was the kind of direction at that time that I was thinking about going down. Um, and I guess one of the things we've seen here, and one of the, the, the great things about the way the programs are designed, is that it reflects what industry is asking for. We, we create ourselves in conversation with industry um, and not wedded to the same kind of um, restrictions that I guess a lot of schools and organisations have, which allows the change quickly quickly. So if something is coming into fashion, like uh, a perfect example on coding courses is the increase in use of Python across the industry at the moment. It's just like escalating rapidly. We didn't have Python in our coding course a year ago. We brought that in immediately to reflect the demand in the industry. And with that comes the opportunity for teachers to invest themselves in that kind of rebuilding of the curriculum and redesigning it. So it, I think the challenge that teachers have, they've been teaching for a very long time the same stuff. It's like how do you keep it, making it exciting and uh, something that they can continuously invest themselves in. I don't know, I'm, sh I'm sure we've all had teachers that feel like they've been stuck. They've been stuck in teachers. Like, you know, we remember our best teachers and we remember maybe some of our worst teachers and maybe the ones that are our worst teachers are the ones that don't want to do it or don't want to be there. So any ideas then picking up on some of the points that you guys are saying that could be adopted by, you know, 
education, general secondary education, or even further education or higher education that will make the system more flexible and adaptive to the needs of the industry? Budget cuts make it really hard. I think the fact that teachers can't actually like take on this extra work, it makes it really tough. So it's up to like after school activities, lunchtime, um, also mums and dads being able to purchase like a tech tools which would further education, like skills that are needed um, now. But it's really tough for educators, I think, at the moment. Um, I was going to say invest. Invest in the system, invest in teachers, yeah. Give them the space and opportunity and bandwidth to be able to do their jobs better. Yeah. Um, I have an idea uh, to actually go and look how Google is developing their talent. So 80% of the time um, employees are doing what they have to do and 20% of the time they have a flexibility to do what they are passionate about. So this is why Google has even their own uh, ecosystem of startups which were born inside Google because they have that opportunity for uh, people to go and think creatively. So if we have modules in the universities or at schools which are fixed, and I mean they are obviously correlated with the overall program, and then something 20% to give an opportunity for students or kids to choose what they would love to uh, learn or uh, get familiar with, that would be a very good idea. I know uh, this particular strategy is used by private schools across the country and what they do is that they engage with their alumni who are leaders or at the forefront of a specific field. They bring them into uh, the schools so that those who are there can see what kind of vision is or the trajectory is for that particular uh, for that particular career. And I know that the schools around where I live, especially the Private, they do bring a lot of technology professionals um, into the school so the children can see like what the potentials um, are available. But I don't think that's currently being done um, at the, uh, the non-private uh, level. Moving on from education slide then. Um, if we think about skills, most valuable skills in the market. Uh, when do you think we'll be in five or ten years' time? At the minute, I would say that technical skills trump soft skills in most technology disciplines. You might disagree. Alice is pulling face at me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, disagree. Uh, I, one of the things that I talk a bit about here at GA, I really don't like the phrase soft skills because the opposite of soft skills are hard skills, and that implies that soft skills are easy. And I don't believe they are. Like, we tend to refer to these communication skills or people skills here. Uh, it's not really it's not a branding exercise. It's just they are underestimated by people in terms oh, of their importance. Yeah, I completely agree with that. They're just completely underestimated um, in terms of succeeding. Um, just really, like hard skills aren't going to do much unless you can actually apply them. Okay, so, so here's, a, here's a thought. Uh, Dina, when you were on the podcast, you said soft skills can't be taught which suggests that they are not easy. You know, okay, hard skills, soft skills is language that we use because we're taught to use it, but absolutely they're not necessarily easy skills. They can't be taught, or are they just picked up over time and acquired? They can be acquired, but then how are they used? And how can you measure? Are they used wisely? Are they used because they were taught? Or are they used because you just observed and you practiced? So, I mean, leadership. I, I love the question, can you learn how to become a leader or be a leader? 
but leadership is a soft skill, right? But can you be taught how to communicate with the team? I think the answer is pretty obvious, right? So you can learn even being in a team or reading tons of books how to how to be in a team. And answering the question about the uh, five and ten years. So part of our product when we started it, we have done a historical skills map uh, looking at 125,000 occupations since 1995. And when you send this uh, question questions today, we, we have those questions, I know. I looked at our skills app and I looked what skills were demanded five years ago, which we have now. Surprise, surprise, I don't know how to answer your question about five and even ten years horizon. Because when we are talking about machine learning, blockchain, or something related to uh, occupations which didn't exist five years ago, we don't know what is going to be in five years from now. So, but uh, a proportion of tech and soft skills, I don't like that separation in general. And we look at our candidates who have tremendous skill sets in professional uh, way, I mean, in technical skills. But then our employers uh, say, look, this person can know this coding, let's say one language of coding, but he should be able to communicate in a team, have a critical thinking and logic. And the rest, we, we are happy to invest and educate them. So I think this is what market says. The market is happy to invest in your education of technical and professional skills, but the market demands you to come with a prepared kind of skill set of personality, um, traits and skills. Continuous learning, though, would need someone, I suppose, to have a flexible way of thinking. If you've got, say, you've got someone who's been in the industry for 20 years and they're in a hierarchical organisation and they're used to being in a management job, and maybe they've been in that job for 15 years and all of a sudden they're told their skills are going to be outdated in five years and they're going to go sit in the classroom and the person sitting next to you is 20 years old and all of a sudden that hierarchy's gone and they have to be flexible in their thinking, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating one to see, and it's something that we see in our classrooms. It's something that, but I think it's a reality for everyone at this point in the way that new skills are being required to be learned. Um, it might not have been something that people were expecting to have to do at this stage of their career. They're now 20, 30 years into a career, but the reality for most people is that skills continue to evolve, and yeah, we have to encourage people to think differently about the idea of continuous learning. I know when I probably have spoke to you before, I talk, we talk an awful lot about growth mindset at GA. Um, it's a you know, framework of thinking that's been around for at least seven years now in terms of how you approach, when you run into challenge and difficulty, how do you overcome that? Like, in a very simple way, growth mindset or fixed mindset, what happens when you run into difficulty? And I think one of the things that tends to happen for people who are maybe more experienced, have been in their careers for a long time, is that it's harder to come to terms with that kind of challenge for yourself. Um, but that's not to say that we meet lots and lots of people who have more career experience that still come into a classroom with an open mind to getting things wrong, making mistakes, messing up, learning from other people, like, and how do you create an environment in a classroom where people feel safe to make mistakes, get things wrong. Outside of the classroom, I mean, now I see you're a and now you're entering the technology space. How have you found that? So you're going from a, from a field where you are a recognised expert 
when you're going into a new field where you're being told that you need help from people who understand it a little bit better. Right, so right now I work for an investment bank and um, I think there's a realisation within the industry that banking isn't now what it once was and there's a lot of individuals who are transitioning into tech. Um, and uh, just to Callum's point, um, I have to confess that it's, been a, it's a really humbling experience because you may be proficient and an expert in a specific area, but they're coming into an area where you have very little knowledge. You know, there's no room for arrogance. You have to kind of accept that um, you may not be the smartest person in the room. And just through that trial and error, um, do, you, uh, do you engage and, and learn and expand your, your knowledge base? But um, it's such a rapidly changing industry. Like, um, as I say, it's been a humbling experience. Anyone else who's kind of gone through that transition and, and felt slightly out of their comfort zone and got into a continuous learning environment, maybe it's not formal, and what challenges has that brought? Um, definitely, because I was always very comfortable doing creative work, um, work which I did in advertising. I was always completely happy doing that sort of work in, in that zone of, yes, this is like pretty easy, I can do this. And then I was suddenly in this CEO role, um, which I had to be in at that stage now, uh, where I needed to learn new things all the time. And that feeling of just like making mistakes the entire time and needing to learn like even more new things was like, pretty overwhelming. But at the same time, it felt amazing, like having you know done, actually done it and being able to create a picture in you know, a business plan and, and learn about all these new things. And I think at school, it's really like we need to be taught how to do this at school from a really young, young age, as you were saying. Um, that world of feeling safe to fail um, is really important to kind of have when you're at that age. Otherwise, you just kind of grow up thinking, oh, you know, I can't, you know, get this wrong. Like, I have to be perfect at what, what I do. Um, otherwise, there'll be repercussions. And that my mindset's really, it doesn't work now um, with how things are today. I think just further to that point, that in the journey that I've been on, I'm firmly of the opinion that there's no such thing as mistakes. Um, there's only learning experiences. So if I mess up once, then I'll try and do my utmost not to, to make that mistake again. But one of the things about technology, and I think what differentiates it from, from finance, is that it's a lot more of a forgiving environment. Um, people uh, whom I've met thus far are so much more willing to, to help and to engage and uh, to lift each other up. Um, whereas from the industry that I've come from, it's, it's not necessarily the case. So, if we've gone through education and we're talking about skills, Dina, you described a marketplace for future skills, or the future of work and skills. It's kind of recruitment, isn't it? It is. <laughs> How is recruitment currently failing the industry, if you believe that it is? Um, fighting or thinking? <laughs> um, yeah, so we are in the recruitment space, but uh, what we observed and why we actually started it, uh, because we experienced uh, problems going into the market being a junior or graduate, just and being employed. So I personally experienced all variety of problems. So the first thing, uh, the outdated CV. So why every one of us should feel an A4 paper with lots and lots and lots of information, 
uh, leaving behind 85% of their skills just because they think they are not relevant. Second thing, uh, there is another person uh, who is going to receive this info paper and he's going to read it as a story. And every one of us is reading story in a different way. So it really matters uh, the chances of having a uh, relevant recruiter from the tech background or even being taught um, as a technical recruiter to assess your technical skills. I personally uh, never found a job by CV when I was in oil and gas sector. Uh, just because recruiters couldn't understand position well, they couldn't understand my background well, and the second they looked at my two masters and maybe like a PhD already at the time, and they, I mean, I was always said you are overqualified or you are underqualified. There was nothing in between, so just just because of that. And the third thing, when uh, the speed of modern business, as I mentioned, is rapid. So if a decision of hiring uh, occurred to a hiring manager, it means they needed the person yesterday. And then 8 to 12 weeks on average, the recruitment process is going, at least in the UK. Uh, and it depends like how fast employees making decision uh, or how complex their job is, but it's in, it's in between like 8 to 12 weeks. So, and then there is like 70% of people who are passing their trial period. So the cost of mistake is high for especially small and medium-sized companies, but also the process is very long. So everything needs to be faster, cheaper, and without the help of technology coming into the recruitment sector, it's impossible to meet the ever non-ending demand of the changing job market. But to that point, and I know that you mentioned kind of smaller companies and the cost of SMEs. Uh, I was talking to someone today who was just describing the idea that you might have two unicorns, uh, say Skyscanner and Amazon, fighting over the same candidates. So one will they'll look at the same candidate, one will go, yeah, this person's great, the other will go, no, they're rubbish. So like, hang on a minute, how can two organisations who surely understand skill sets to that degree make such sort of wildly different assumptions? When essentially you're talking about software engineers or engineering, and it should be fairly straightforward that that person can do the job or not. So I've encountered many engineers um, as an angel investor, and um, and this goes back to the previous discussion on soft skills. Um, they are brilliant at engineering, um, geniuses, but their ability to articulate that genius is uh, varied, and so. Um, Depending on uh, the synergies between that individual and that entity um, can lead to so many different outcomes. And so I think that's one of the reasons why there can be a differential between an assessment of one candidate by one person and another assessment by another um, entity to that same candidate. Yeah, I'd add to that. In, in kind of time back to the point earlier about can soft skills, communication skills be taught? I like fundamentally believe they can, but to your point earlier, measuring them is harder. And you know, we live in a very metrics obsessed. It's, it's very in fashion to try and get as granular as we possibly can about the data of our hiring candidates. And the conversation about you know the the value of that and you know blind recruiting and the the definite positives of that. At the same time, you then maybe miss some of the things around relationships and interpersonal skills 
which may come that there's a, there is a degree of subjectivity in that in terms of whether one person fits into the team that they're going to be working with and sometimes you only know that getting to meet the person or chatting to them and building understanding if there's a rapport in the relationship um, and I think that's underestimated in terms of the kind of conversation that we're having around the metrics of assessing people for the right roles. Mm. It's, it's, it's not just sorry, it's not just for um, uh, recruitment, but also founding in investment as well. So you, if you go and speak to investors, and those on the engineering side can't quite articulate what it is they've done or what their vision is, uh, the investors lose um, interest quite quickly um, also. Soft skills are really underestimated, and I feel like they can be exercised. So in schools, it's like you know, exercising. You don't, you're not going to know something or be immediately good at something, but it's it can be built up. Um, those those other skills which are so academic. So yeah, I agree with what So um, look, three well, four of you really have come into technology from non-traditional routes. As people who are coming into the industry. What challenges have you faced and what have you had to overcome to, to kind of get into the industry and be, be accepted, I suppose, and thrive in it? Um, I think that if you don't have a business background, it's quite tough. Like, you are really intent on building the most effective um, product that you can, but actually, it's not just about that. Um, people don't just want to know about like, what you create and how effective it is. It's about how is it going to work, what plan do you have, how are you going to sell this, can you, you know, pitch this really well, and I think that's what I've found quite hard, because you can't be, I kind of understand now that you can't be brilliant at everything, whereas before I used to beat myself up thinking, oh, like, you know, I've done all the hard work, why can't I sell as well, like, why can't I pitch incredibly well, it's so easy for other people. It's tricky, and perhaps having a team at the beginning where everyone had those skills, which kind of fit as a team, um, And the second one, uh, time management. 
I thought that I'm perfect at managing my time. And then I, when I was looking at uh, a watch and it was six o'clock, and I had a feeling that, oh, I haven't done anything today, uh, oh, but I have the whole night ahead of me. There was really something wrong with that. Um, and then, yes, so when you are running a business and when you are a founder of something uh, really developing, which is really developing fast, um, you needed to learn time management. And that's what I have done, and I learned, uh, taught all my team. So we have um, something we, we can share if you want to come and, and talk to us. We can uh, contribute to your time management too. Uh, I think for me, there's those three significant challenges. The first is just the uncertainty when you come into a new industry. Uh, there's a lot you don't know, uh, and it's just overcoming that. And through trial and error, discussion, expanding your um, network and, and knowledge base. The second, and I think this is quite significant also, is that if and when you encounter a, a failure, it's the speed with which you can recover from that failure. Because when you venture into tech, you're going to mess it up. Uh, at some stage, you're going to make mistakes, but um, it's important not to. Uh, it's important for me, at least, to, that it didn't impact upon me mentally. That you had to brush yourself off and, 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 and keep going. Um, and I think, to some extent, that stemmed from the industry within which I was coming from, which is quite unforgiving, where mistakes are not really um, <laughs> welcomed. Uh, and um, uh, as I say, yeah, just uh, just brushing that off as quickly as possible. Um, I think one of the things that it has fundamentally helped me uh, so far is leaning into the stuff that I know I love and keeping an open mind to the possibilities of where my interests might take me and change over the years. If you told me 10 years ago that I would have up in this space, I probably would have laughed at you. I just had no specific intention to head in this route. Um, but I found that I think one of the things in the conversation at the moment about um, education, particularly. Uh, early education, so it seems to be a, a strong focus on the sciences and STEM subjects to get people into tech. And I understand some of the logic behind that, but at the same time, it, it feels like there's a devaluing of some of the other skills, or there's some of the other skills that are developed through the arts and through creative pursuits. You have to be exceptionally creative to be a great developer or designer, like, and you can develop those skills through a lot of different passions and, and pathways. Um, studying improv quite a bit when I was in my early career, it put me in an incredibly good place to be, start with yes, make a whole bunch of mistakes and be comfortable with screwing up. That's <laughs> really good. Um, being able to be self-aware, laugh yourself, be in the moment, a whole bunch of those things that underpin like, improv, which on the surface might not have any relation to the work I do here at all, has absolutely helped me in a massive way in terms of being open-minded to things I don't know. I work with a whole bunch of very talented people. I'm not a designer, I'm not a developer, but put an awful lot of trust in other people and to lean into, to your point, when you don't know things, trusting people around mm. you. Um, and, yeah, and, and being prepared to take risks in, in that regard. One last thing to finish on, and I will we'll start with that, I thought we want something short that if people are listening to this and they're interested in getting into tech, they can take away. You've all made that transition into the industry. What one piece of practical advice skill or something that they, they could do, would you give it to someone if they wanted to get into the technology industry? I guess the one piece of advice I would give, uh, I'd leverage off um, Richard Branson. Richard Branson is, in his autobiography uh, wrote that um, in life you should try to make your vocation your vacation. Uh, 
Um, and if you can go to work and it feels like a holiday, then you're blessed. You achieve what very few people uh, achieve. Uh, and I think that would be the, the piece of advice. To, to do what you love, and if it's tech, then, then go for it. And uh, the money and the stress and all these other things um, will be secondary because, uh, as I say, you'll be doing what you love. If you have an idea of switching a career or starting your own uh, business, go and talk to people. Go and talk about your idea. Uh, go and discuss even the craziest one you have. And you can end up doing two things. Either you can do a product validation survey early, or you can find a really cool co-founding team. So that would be my advice. Yeah, I echo that. Um, I can wrap around and play, as in remember to experiment and be open-minded about possibility and in turn, go and talk to people, research. There's so many different things that you can do for free, or ways in which you can test your ideas as to how interested in this. Is something that I'd like to explore further and create space for yourself to do that. That's sometimes hard, but trying to give yourself space to explore those ideas and, and see where they take you. Um, that pretty much covers what I was going to say as well. But I think also try and work with people who you can be friends with who are like really. You get that on with them a lot, so you don't have major differences or arguments because at the beginning that's so, like, you need to get that right um, for things to move ahead really well. Well, thank you to General Assembly for hosting us this evening and letting us record here, and, and thanks for coming and listening to us recording this chat. Thank you.